Uh, let's come to the word of God now. Um, uh, let's pray as we do that. Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your word is unfailing and that it uh, gives us knowledge of you and an, underst- and an understanding of you and an understanding of your way of salvation through Jesus. We pray that you'll bless us as we consider that together now. Uh, me as I preach and, and, uh, and the congregation, as uh, uh, we pray that your, your Holy Spirit will apply these things to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, apart from that thing about the composers, I have a more important question for you this morning, uh, which is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Our text this morning is Luke chapter 9, just the three, just three verses, not, not the whole thing that Ben read. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 20. These verses put that question right in front of each of us. Who is Jesus to me? I'll read those three verses again now. It might help if you have them in front of you. And it happened as Jesus was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Well, now, it it can't always have been easy, I think, being one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, For one thing, there was always some new challenging teaching of Jesus that they had to try to wrap their heads around. And then as Jesus' ministry went on, he and his followers were also increasingly encountering hostility from the Jewish religious authorities. There there was another difficulty. Uh, And then sometimes Jesus himself put his disciples on the spot with a question like this. And we see how Peter responded. Uh, His confession of Christ in these verses, this confession was the climax of a long process, not only for Peter, but for Israel. As we see in those, uh, as we see in those alternative identities that the disciples list in answering Jesus' first question in verse 18, the way they answer, who do the crowds say that I am? And we might notice there's a conservative tendency in the crowd's speculations. An assumption that God will repeat what he's done before. That God will send Elijah again. Or John the Baptist. But in Jesus, God hasn't given us the same again. He hasn't given us the usual. In Jesus, God has sent us his only begotten son, who is the Christ. I'll encourage you to ask this morning, who do you say that he is? Are you still taking refuge in a safer conclusion than the true conclusion? And then if you have believed the truth about him, as I know many of us have, what difference does it make in our heart? What difference does it make in our life? So we'll look first at the context. I've I've put an outline in the notices. Um, I won't uh, formally begin each section with each heading, but you should be able... It might give you a guide to where we're going. Uh, So we're starting with the context. Uh, of Peter's confession. Uh, and uh, it's, it's uh, in fact, um, reported in three of the four Gospels, in uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke. But we're looking at Luke this morning. Uh, and we see that uh, the confession is uh, prompted by 
Well, two questions, really. And uh, the first question from Jesus is certainly an interesting one. Uh, So let's come first to the the first question, uh, which is an interesting question. Before this significant conversation, notice that Jesus was praying alone, as he often did. Uh, Luke's, this Gospel of Luke, uh, draws particular attention to the important role of prayer in the spiritual life and the ministry of Jesus. We can imagine this was a striking example for the apostles. And we know that, and it, not coincidentally, Jesus' prayer life was accompanied by a great ministry investment in the lives of his disciples, especially the twelve, the apostles. So as Jesus emerges from solitary prayer, he has a question for the disciples. Notice, he's not just asking Peter this, but he's asking a number of them. This is made clear in verses 18 and 19. So he asks them, who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus is asking his disciples about the rumours and theories circulating about him in the wider community, or what he refers to as the crowds. Now, the crowds is a, a more polite translation of a Greek word that sometimes means the mob. Uh, the way we might refer to a mass of people, not all of them particularly well-informed. Jesus knows that he is being talked about by these crowds, and we know that there were, at this time, crowds following him around. They were flocking to seek his healing or to hear his teaching. And Jesus knows that they were also speculating about his identity. They were asking, who is this man who does and says these things? And in the, um, the passage, the whole passage from Luke that Ben read, uh, you might have noticed in verses 7 to 9 that the local ruler, who was called Herod the Tetrarch, he was asking the same question, asking, who is this of whom I hear such things? He was perplexed, it says. The life and ministry of Jesus has ra- had raised this question for many people. And of course, it's a question that uh, many men and women today continue to ask. And we see, uh, we see that they came up, as the disciples report, the crowd came up with a range of wrong answers. In verse 19, the disciples, it's not only Peter, uh, they tell Jesus that the crowds are saying a number of things about him. Uh, some of the answers they reported were John the Baptist, they say you're John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. Now what these answers have in common is that they are all well-intentioned, they're all complementary, but they're also wrong. We note that they were answers from people who were not hostile to Jesus. They were good answers, we might say, in a sense, in that they described Jesus as a significant person doing God's work. They were good answers, but none of them was the right answer. And, and the answers were actually all over the place. Uh, Calvin, uh, the uh, theologian and commentator, argues that the wrong answers are given here because the crowds were looking in the wrong place for answers about Jesus. They were mixing in theories from their own heads rather than Jesus uh, attending to Jesus' own self-revelation through his teaching and miracles. Uh, Calvin concludes from this, rightly, that we have to be careful and vigilant in keeping firmly to Christ while the whole world slips away into its inventions. So we can say some very positive things about these theories about Jesus' identity. Clearly, his teaching was recognised by the crowds as prophetic, as speaking God's words. 
His doctrine was not like that of the self-serving religious leaders of the time, the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus uh, conspicuously stood out as a bold witness against evil wherever it was found. And it was good that the crowds could recognise this. But their theories about Jesus were still incoherent guesswork. They don't make sense. How could Jesus be John the Baptist? They were alive at the same time. One of them had even baptised the other. How could he be Elijah or one of the other former prophets? These guesses may be based on a misreading of prophecy mixed with a popular belief at the time in the transmigration of souls. People uh, believing in a kind of reincarnation that's not biblically supported. They're nutty theories, frankly. And we know very well today in an age of social media that just because an idea is out there and some people are repeating it, it doesn't mean that the idea is a very good one, let alone a true one. But the disciples, including Peter, they'd been too close to Jesus, too close to the real thing, to easily embrace any of these vague and unsupported theories about him. They were in a good position to come to know the truth about him. And Jesus chose this time, this occasion, I think very deliberately, he chose this time to ask them first what they had, he had, they had heard others saying about his identity and then to ask them what they had come to believe about him, to give them a chance to confess their faith in him. So in verse 20, we come to the most important question, the second one that Jesus puts to the, to the disciples. But who do you say that I am? Jesus is putting the disciples on the spot here. And uh, a, a number of them as a group, not just Peter. Who do you say that I am? So Peter may have been acting as the spokesman for the disciples in a sense. But whether or not that's true, it was Peter that answered the question first. And he answered it from his heart. At the end of verse 20, he says to Jesus that he is the Christ of God or God's Messiah, to use the Hebrew word, meaning God's anointed one. Uh, this uh, is a reference to the custom uh, in Israel of anointing uh, particular people for particular offices, uh, important offices uh, they performed for God. Uh, those who were anointed were prophets, also priests, and also kings. And uh, uh, the anointing was, was, um, was pouring a scented, a beautiful oil, a nice oil, on, on the person being anointed. And it consecrated them to the service of God. And it, um, and, and, uh, it was a sign of his blessing as well. Uh, I do note, as a mod, you might think, well, that sounds pretty old-timey as a practice. But uh, the queen herself was anointed a, during her coronation in 1953. Um, in a, yes, so you, you need to see the film of it, but it's, uh, it's an extraordinary ceremony and they're actually kind of, it's meant to be so special that they kind of hide it from the, from the cameras. But it did happen. The, the Queen herself was anointed um, in a similar way. Uh, so, God's anointed one. So in uh, saying that this is what Jesus is, God's Messiah, he recognises, of course, that Jesus is not just another religious teacher. He's not even merely God's latest prophet. Peter sees that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. 
So here's the culmination of the revelation and promises of God to his people found in the Old Testament from Genesis 1.1 to Malachi 4, verse 6, from beginning to end. Uh, some of you, uh, another way of thinking about this idea of the Messiah is uh, to think of that often jokey expression people use when uh, they say that somebody is doing the Lord's work. Uh, this tends to be used humorously as if when someone is doing something nice that we approve of, like making us a cup of tea. But that is literally what the Messiah was to do, the Lord's work. He was to bring both God's due judgment and salvation from that judgment. Through the Messiah, the Lord would suddenly come again to his temple, as we read in Malachi 3. If we want examples of the eager expectation of the Messiah at the time uh, of Jesus' birth and life, think of Simeon and Anna, uh, the, the elderly man and woman who great, greet, they greeted and blessed the infant Jesus when he came to the temple for dedication. They were waiting for God's consolation of Israel. And when they saw Jesus, even as a baby, they could see that this had arrived. Now, many Jews early in Jesus' ministry at first thought that Jesus might be the Messiah. That was in the speculation. But he disappointed their expectations of a political and military leader, one who would overthrow the Romans and rule a restored Israel from the throne of David. There was nothing wrong with Jesus, but these expectations were wrong and they were based on a misunderstanding of biblical prophecy. Jesus actually fulfilled the scriptural conditions for the Messiah. He was not only a descendant of Abraham, but he was of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, and he was born in Bethlehem. He proved his Messiahship throughout his ministry, death and resurrection from the dead. If we think about prophets, priests and kings, well, Jesus, all of whom were anointed, Jesus showed that he is God's anointed prophet. He taught with authority, like no one else it was said. People recognised that Jesus spoke God's words. He showed also that he is God's anointed king. Jesus showed again and again his kingship over the creation through his miracles, casting out demons. He was healing the sick. He was raising the dead. For good measure, he fed the 5,000, as we read this morning. He was king over creation, and he also showed that uh, supremacy over creation in his resurrection from the dead. And also, Jesus was God's anointed priest. Uh, you, at a, yeah, you can look up later Psalm 110 and Hebrews chapter 7, which call him a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a special line of priesthood. And Jesus as priest not only makes the supreme and eternally effective sacrifice, but he is that supreme sacrifice. Jesus offers his own life as an atonement for sin. Now, sometimes when I'm talking to our English class students, I've tried to simplify the language of Jesus as Messiah by describing him as God's special agent. Uh, but I'm conscious that still leaves a lot to explain or to flesh out, to say the least. God's special agent to do what? Well, surely, just to start with, God's agent to bring in the day of the Lord and at the same time reconcile us to God through his death. And having done that, to rule his kingdom at the Father's right hand and to represent his people to the Father. So in Peter's brief confession here, is the whole sum and story of our salvation. Jesus is the Christ of God. He's not just more, one more in the series of God's prophets. He's a one-off, the long-expected Messiah of God. He is the one. 
Here he was, in front of Peter, Peter's rabbi, his teacher. And Peter had realised that he was the fulfilment of the religious and national hopes of Israel. The Christ of God had come, and it was Jesus. What he would do, what he would do next, was not yet clear to Peter or to anyone else around him, but here he was, the Messiah. There was no need to go to or to look to anyone else. Thinking for, about Peter then for a second, the, the one who did the confessing, he was in a much better position than the crowds to know who Jesus really was, wasn't he? Peter had seen enough, and he'd seen it closely enough to conclude that Jesus was the deliverer for whom the people of God had been looking for so long. And yet it is also true that no matter how strong and persuasive this ev- the evidence was in front of Peter, a work of God's revelation was needed for him to recognise this. God had to open Peter's spiritual eyes to see it. Uh, This is said more explicitly in the uh, parallel account of uh, the confession in Matthew 16, verse 17. Jesus here confirms both the truth of what Peter has said, the truth of his Messiahship, when he replies to Peter, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is true for us today as well. The evidence that Jesus is the Christ is before us in the pages of the Bible, which gives us a true account of him, but God must open our eyes to give to the truth of it. We can imagine the relief and the release of Peter's confession as he spoke from the overflow of his heart. He speaks with a sort of matter-of-fact assurance that his conclusion about Jesus is true even though it contradicts the theories of the crowds that we've just heard about. Peter had the certainty of reaching the correct conclusion, of knowing the all-important truth about Jesus. He was finished with any speculation, confusion or doubt. By God's grace, Peter had come to personally grasp, to feel and to possess the ultimate truth that Jesus was God's Messiah. Of course, we see in other places in the Old Testament that after this, Peter had lapses. At times, he needed to repent. But the most important thing about him was that he believed in Jesus and went on to proclaim him. We see in Peter's confession of Christ that he had found the only worthy object, the only worthy focus for all of his faith, hope and love. He would still have misunderstandings and stumbles, but Peter's confession was a moment of clarity on which to build a life and a ministry as on the most solid of rocks. In the same way, every congregation of believers, every congregation of believers in the Lord Jesus, including this one here at South Yarra, is a collection of confessors of the Christ of God. And we share that confession with Peter and the other apostles, our fathers in the faith. But what if Jesus put you on the spot today? What if he challenged you? What if he asked you the same question? Who do you say that he is? As we said, Peter had had the benefit of some years of Jesus' fellowship and teaching. Privilege, not only a benefit, of having been with Jesus. But we might have been in a church for a long time, a church with good teaching. We may have gone along with a lot of it, with you know whatever goes on there. But having been in the church is no, of no ultimate value if it doesn't lead us to placing our faith in Christ for ourselves. Every one of us here today, by definition, has access to the Bible 
and to what it says about Jesus. If you don't have a paper copy, you've got it on your phone, you know, unless you've got a really old phone. But we all have access to the Bible. And uh, the Bible is the most accurate and full information we can get about Jesus. Don't forget, it's far more accurate than any movie about him, which you know, might give a picture of what he's supposed to, supposed to have looked like, but where's it? that's no, no particular accuracy in that. The Bible's far more accurate than any painting allegedly of Jesus, no matter how beautiful it is. Consider what a beautiful and true picture we have of Jesus in the Bible if we will only pick it up and read it. The Bible, God's word, presents Jesus as the ultimate final revelation of God to sinful men and women and it shows us the way for our reconciliation to God and for eternal salvation through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Faith in Christ is the gift of God, but it is based on compelling evidence, as Peter's was. So do you believe this? Who do you say that Jesus is? At the most basic level, has Jesus broken into your life and disrupted it? And does he now rule in it? Do you live like you believe that Jesus is the Christ of God? If you've already believed in Jesus for a long time, does he increasingly rule in your life? Is he still conquering territory? Does the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, now animate and motivate your life? Because the universal rule of Jesus, the Christ, his universal rule is actually inevitable. The Bible says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Jesus rules already today in the hearts and lives of those who have believed in him. Those who, like Peter, have confessed him as the Christ of God. He rules in confessing and worshipping communities like this church also. Each of us will meet Jesus Christ one day, either as our saviour or our judge. Are you ready to meet him? Have you believed in him? Are you following him? Are you under his protection and power? Does his spirit dwell in you? Whether you believe in him already or whether you're on the very edge of belief, may the Lord reveal more of Jesus Christ to each of us and may each of us be found in him at the last day. Amen. Well, let's praise the name of our Lord Jesus now in the words of hymn 248, appropriately. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greatest son. Hymn number 248.